0: podcast one production punchy whacked power influence take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying welcome to women with clout (laughs) Catherine I'm delighted that our guest for this episode is Justice Megan Latham Who started as a solicitor in Leeton and uh, eventually rose to very um, high and important positions as a judge in the Supreme Court? She has had a long and very distinguished career. She's thought profoundly about that career and about the New South Wales legal system, about the exercise of power, and she has always been a fierce. Feminist. Yes, I remember Megan very clearly, though I've met her
1: since, but um, some years ago when she was the Commissioner of the Independent Commission Against Corruption, ICAC, which is a, is a very high-profile role and she certainly
0: has had a stellar career yes. in the law. And it, it is a quite controversial and difficult position. It is. As indeed I think we're going to hear. <music> Megan... It's wonderful to have you here on Women With Clout and you certainly qualify as a woman with clout. You have presided over some fascinating and controversial cases as a judge. Do any of them stand out as particularly memorable?
2: I think probably one that did stand out as memorable because it was so bizarre was um, a trial of a man by the name of Desmond Campbell and he took his brand new wife camping outside the um, Royal National Park and she allegedly fell to her death according to him because she left the tent in the middle of the night to go to the toilet. None of the circumstantial evidence supported that story and he was quite a narcissistic and Very devious person. He'd had a number of female partners and he managed to extricate himself from every relationship and take all of their money at the same time. (laughs) So, (laughs) convenient. He'd established a pattern, and this particular death was part of, of that pattern.
0: It must be fascinating, yes, but also disturbing. Because you're a judge, you get to see people when things have gone by and large horribly wrong for some reason. How do you protect yourself from getting emotionally caught up in that case and I'm sure many of the others that you've presided over? I
2: don't think you can totally isolate yourself. I mean, there are always cases that you find distressing, but when you've been doing it for long enough, There's a certain, and I don't want to sound ghoulish, but there's a certain fascination with the range of human behaviour and what humans are actually capable of. And 99% of them, they're not monsters, they're ordinary people and given a set of circumstances, they have acted in a certain way. So... Mr Campbell, who I just described, he was a true psychopath, uh, but he was unusual in the sense that the majority of people are just caught up, as I said, in some extreme circumstances and indeed most of the people who are convicted of murder almost have no prior criminal history and that's largely because murders are committed in a domestic context or they're committed, you know, in in the middle of a neighbour dispute or some extreme reaction to stress or violence. Mm.
0: So it sounds like being a judge actually expanded your sense of compassion for ordinary human beings.
2: Yes, it did, really. Uh, It did because I, I think that we all like to think The human race is so civilised, and that we've come such a long way. In fact, you don't have to scratch very far beyond the surface of a person to see some fairly primitive and basic instincts. And I think we forget that those instincts are always there.
1: Megan, can we go back a little bit and just talk about did you decide on law very early in your life or was it something that was a little bit serendipitous? How did you how did you choose that career path?
2: I don't know that I had a clear idea that I was going to choose that profession. I always had a very kind of combative relationship with my father in a in a good way. I mean, he taught me to think for myself, and he would constantly question statements that I made. And so I developed a kind of strong taste for, for debate, but it really didn't gel for me until I was in, I think it was year 12 at school. I did a tutorial in in first level English, and at the end of the tutorial, the English teacher said to me, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I don't really know. And she said, well, you'd make a very good lawyer. <laughs> ah. <laughs> and I, I think sometimes those chance remarks, you know, when they're made at a, at a particular time, they can be very influential. So when I left uh, school, I went into arts law.
0: Yeah, we've heard quite a few times in these interviews two things that you've just told us, one, a teacher who gives an idea to someone of their future, and the other, how often women who have made their way in public life had a close and uh, a very equal relationship with their father, that the father's influence is really powerful. So it's interesting you said that.
2: Well, well, it is powerful, but it's important for another reason as well. I, I didn't have any brothers. I had two sisters. And I went to an all-girls school and it never really occurred to me that my voice wasn't as valuable or or, or as interesting as anybody else's because my father had always given me, you know, that consideration. And it was was a pretty rude shock when I got to university because I was in these tutorials full of men. And for the first time I realised that their voice was preferenced over mine and I found that quite a difficult adjustment.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because when you were doing law, it wasn't as it is now where I think often the majority of the students are are, are women. Then it was still relatively unusual, wasn't it, to be a female legal student?
2: Well, yes, there weren't that many of us. I mean, we're definitely in the minority.
0: But
1: remarkably um, less change further up the chain mm. uh, so uh top-tier law firm Partnerships for example still sort of you know usually if you're lucky around 30 percent but but possibly less than that not as not as many women on the bench obviously barristers still really struggling why why has change given that that pipeline which we're often told is the whole answer if we get more women graduating from law the whole thing will change why has it been so slow do you think
2: well look I, I was quite angry yesterday I, when I was watching a replay of Josh Frydenberg talking about fertility rates falling and what we were going to do about it. The answer is so bleedingly obvious. I can't, I can't believe that he was prepared to say that publicly. But if you provide adequate maternity leave and childcare women will stay in the workforce. You can't expect them to work the hours they do that is might be required of a partner in a big law firm and, and not know that their children are in quality care. I just don't, don't understand why the state doesn't realise that they have a responsibility if they want women to continue to contribute, not just professionally, but to the workforce to actually grow the economy and grow the population, the state has a responsibility to provide them with childcare. Mm
0: -hmm. How did you cope with all that? Because you're married, you have a son, you know, yet you have risen quite seamlessly. I mean, I know you started Leighton as a solicitor and then moved into the Premier's office, et cetera, et cetera, but how did you manage with all those complications and difficulties?
2: Well, like all those things, you know, you look back at it, And it's all a kind of a blur. I mean, I think it was a bit of a nightmare sometimes. I remember that when Reese was in childcare between the ages of six months and five years before he started school, and there was always this, you know, five or six o'clock panic because I had to get there at a certain time to pick him up. And sometimes it was just impossible. You know, if I was in court, I couldn't say to a judge, I'm sorry, we're going to have to adjourn. So there was always these last minute calls to my mother or my husband's mother. You know, thank God we had that help. And the other thing I remember, weeks and weeks of just the most pervasive fatigue, you know, the The tiredness, feeling like I was dragging myself from one place to another. But somehow you kind of, you know, you do it because you have to, you just got to put one foot in front of the other. And that's what I did.
1: It's hard work. One of the things that you know has been obvious, and I've been reporting on it for some years is that the legal profession, generally, whether it's in the courts or in law firms so on, so on, does have very high levels, according to a number of studies of bullying and harassment. And we've just recently seen, of course, some allegations about a former, high court judge. Why is that particularly the case? Now, now, obviously, there are other sectors of the economy that also have that. Um, Somebody said to me recently, why would law firms be better? Surely they know the law about (laughs) harassment. Why would they be particularly poor examples of it? I'm just wondering what your observation is about that. Is it about hierarchy, you know, very distinct pecking orders? Is that one of the reasons that we see that behaviour being a bit disproportionate there?
2: I think it's, it is, hierarchy, but it goes deeper than that because at the heart of the law is the exercise of power. I mean, that's what the law is about. It's about the power that comes with money, the power that comes with knowledge, uh, the power that comes with the strategy that you adopt. And so lawyers, I think, are ingrained in that culture of, of power, and it's another facet of the exercise of power. But I also think it's so incredibly competitive these days that there's a much wider scope for that kind of bullying if the person who is bullying has something to gain by way of rising more quickly through the hierarchy. Mm-hmm.
1: has changed for women because I'm sure you've got many anecdotes about running into assumptions, bias and sexism, but has much changed and has it changed for the better in some ways?
2: I think it has changed in the sense that there are a lot more women at senior levels of the judiciary. There was one female Supreme Court judge when I was uh, practising Crown Prosecutor. I think now there is... Eight or nine female Supreme Court judges. So there, I mean, there are more women in the in the in the judiciary, yeah. and with their presence, I mean, just their presence on a on a daily professional basis, uh, people have to adjust to the fact that that they're there and that they they will probably in, continue to grow in numbers. So the culture has to. Ad- adapt to a certain extent. There's still, I think, the problem that women judges encounter with the male profession because I think that there are men who practice at the bar who have some trouble adjusting to the authority that a woman judge exercises.
0: It's interesting because I do think that, there are still quite a few people, not all of them men, sadly, who do find it particularly difficult to deal with the idea of women in authority. We've seen that with female politicians and leaders of countries and how intrinsically illegitimate a lot of people automatically feel that a woman wielding power somehow is. And I imagine that is a particular hurdle that women judges have to deal with more often than Well, probably not female politicians. That's probably the only other group I imagine who cop it even worse. Um, But do people try to avoid appearing in front of women judges or how how does it manifest in the world of the judiciary?
2: I don't think people necessarily try to avoid appearing in front of women judges. I think they try and avoid appearing in front of certain judges and some of them might be women. Right. But... I do remember striking a certain attitude, you know, when I was a practising Crown Prosecutor and I think it's interesting apropos of, of what Julia Gillard has said recently in her book and during the course of interviews. There's a real reaction to women who exercise not just power but they exercise power with a certain steely strength. And I think that's very confronting to men. You know, you, we've often heard these stories about when men show strength and determination, that's that's de- it's a desirable quality. When women do the same thing, they're kind of a hard-nosed bitch, you know, and that's mm. that stereotype is still very much current. And I don't know quite what you do about that i just think there are there are men who cannot stomach the idea that a woman should exercise authority with a sense of of you know justice and that they are going to stick to their guns that they won't be persuaded otherwise that they will try to do the right thing according to their sense of justice and duty, I think some men see that as very dangerous. It's generally, I think, born out of fear, fear on the part of men that this is a woman that they can't control, they can't influence her, they can't cosy up to her and kind of cajole her into some other position. And and that that's I think something that they just can't manage.
1: That's that's so interesting because so much of the writing and analysis that I've done over the years it's been about cracking down that boys' club. I imagine in the law you've seen an awful lot of that over the years. The, the the boys who kind of all know each other probably went to school together. Mm-hmm, for I their guess. Sake. and their fathers probably went and to school fathers, together as well. Yes, exactly, and that can be quite impenetrable, can't
0: it?
2: Not just impenetrable. It's mind-bogglingly boring you know I I can't tell you the number of dinners that I've gone to Mm. the number of functions I've had to attend the number of conferences I've gone to and you just see these group of men in suits standing around in a huddle you know, all kind of laughing and joking and the idea that a woman would just walk up and somehow insinuate herself into the conversation is just beyond the pale. I mean, they look at you like you've dropped in from outer space.
0: When you were talking before about being a female judge and some of the men finding it very hard to deal with a woman having power and authority... You have actually seen the way power operates, especially in New South Wales, because you did end up being head of ICAC. What do you feel about it and what could we do differently in the way we exercise power?
2: That's a really tough one because my experience at ICAC was partly born of my own naivety and it took me a while to see that. Uh, I think it was because I'd had such a long history in the law and in the judiciary and by and large all of my colleagues in the judiciary were very respectful. They valued my contribution. We were all treated as equals, um, particularly in the Supreme Court while Justice Spiegelman was the Chief Justice. It was a very equal and inclusive uh, collegiate atmosphere. And so I didn't really see it coming when I got to ICAC, the interaction I had, particularly with aspects of New South Wales politics, who didn't like what ICAC was doing, it kind of never occurred to me that they would treat me any differently to the way they treated the former commissioner or the commissioner before that. But it became clear to me that they were treating me differently and that they were quite offended by the fact that I, I didn't kind of sit there and simper and smile and, you know, appease them. And I I'd, I couldn't really be anyone other than who I was. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to change my personality and I wasn't going to change my, my way of dealing with people. And so there was this kind of you know bumping up against these people who really saw me as a nuisance i don't think that that i could have taken a step back and and said oh well i'm going to approach this differently i'll try and kind of form some kind of relationship with these people and hope that that they will understand that I'm working in this environment, that was just never going to work because they were so aligned to their own political interests and so against what ICAC was doing. It, It was a revelation to me that the people who were operating at that political level really didn't understand that ICAC was a standing Royal Commission and didn't really understand what that meant and didn't really understand anything about the procedures that we went through or the processes that we adopted. And so it was really an an ideological opposition and I don't think in that situation that there's anything much that you can do about it. The shock, I think, was that it was like they wanted to reduce me to just another, you know, a, a female bureaucrat who they could, they could manage um, and they, they were always going to find me resistant <laughs> to that way of managing me.
1: You've had Megan an extraordinary career. Do you often get asked to speak about your career? I'm sure you. I'm sure you are. Um, and and your advice, I guess, um, which I imagine you sometimes get people asking you, what's your best advice, especially those who are starting out. Let us say in um, that legal sphere.
2: This is something that was incredibly important to me when I was starting out. I remember when I was a solicitor. And I really didn't know whether I was going to be any good at it. I came up against a lot of men who didn't think I shouldn't be in the profession. And at the same time, you know, I'd come out of university. I was a very avid feminist. I did a lot of reading. And one of the writers that I discovered at the time was a New Zealand writer, Mansfield, and she wrote these letters to her friend back in New Zealand while she was en route to Europe and she was going to Europe because she wanted to pursue her career as a writer and she was very young, she was only 23 or something, and She wrote in one of these letters, which subsequently I stuck to a wall, and it was risk, risk anything. Care no more for the opinions of others, for those voices. Do the hardest thing on earth for you, act for yourself, face the truth and somehow that kind of struck a chord with me and i just knew that whatever i did i was going to try and and hold true to that it sounds a bit corny but it actually resonated with me and it never never put me in the wrong place as far as i was concerned
0: No wonder you drove those bloody politicians crazy.
1: (laughs) And I don't think it sounds corny. She's one of my favourite favourite writers. I think it
0: sounds profoundly um, sensible, actually. And I can't can't think of advice I'd rather young, aspiring legal minds should get. Do you know what I mean? Like it's so important that our judiciary holds to those kinds of principles. Mm-hmm. When you reflect on your long and very successful but not uncontroversial career do you feel a sense of yes i lived up to what i intended to do i'm satisfied when i look back
2: I have thought about it and i know that i would not have done anything differently i'm not going to you know second guess what choices i should have made i made them at the time and in the place uh, that was required and i was I was happy with that with uh, I'm sure that you know as long as as long as you can say well that was the choice I made it was the right decision at the time then that's all you can ask and I think there's far too much of this reflecting on what you could have done or what you you know should have done it's it's far too easy to be critical of decisions that that you might have made in the past, uh, but you can't remake them. And I still think that most of the people that have to make those decisions in difficult circumstances generally make the right ones. But they're a product they're a product of that time and that place.
0: Exceedingly true, and very good advice, Megan. Thank you so much for talking to us. I think this examination of clout, real clout, the exercise of power has been really profoundly important, certainly for me, um, because I've always diddled around on the edges, um, because I've always diddled around on the edges. (laughs) So I'm quite impressed (laughs) uh, to see someone who's actually had real power and used it and used it with such a solid sense of self and purpose. Yeah. Fantastically illuminating. Thank you so much, Megan. My pleasure. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and Catherine Fox and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Tina Matanov. Theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts.